We love you. Thank you for time we've set aside tonight to continue our study on the history of the New Testament church and all that pertains to it. Pray you'll bless us tonight and help us to uh, put it all together and to uh, learn from it and to grow from it. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. As you know, we have been basically doing dealing with two uh, church periods here. We came through them separately, but now we're kind of with both of them, dealing with the Dark Ages. Um, we, that would be the Thyatira, which starts about 500 and brings us up to about 1,000. And then the Sardis period, which picks up around 1,000 and brings us up to about uh, 1,500 at the time of the Reformation. A lot of things happen in this uh, uh, time period here, this 1,000 years. And we've tried to, I've tried to isolate it all where you could g- grasp it and get a handle on it uh, kind of componently, you know, so you don't have to deal with everything that's going on. Last time, uh, we went back and we traced through the Bible-believing line. And church history, as you've heard me say many, many times, and it's something that I always keep in my own mind, uh, because it can be a very complicated subject, but for me, I have to make everything simplistic for me to grab it and understand it and certainly remember it. So the whole concept of church history is just based on the two lines that we've seen develop. And um, they're not complicated lines. The one line represented by the Roman Catholic Church and all of the things that they do. The other line represented by the Bible believers and all that they do. We started out and showed you how it all got going in the book of Acts. We defined it all from the book of Acts, and then we started to come through. And now here we are uh, up into the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, and we're now dealing with uh, uh, the lines very clearly laid out. Last time we went back and we dealt with all the Bible-believing groups, and you have pretty much everybody that is anybody uh, in church history. Uh, I would, uh, you know, uh, get those, I don't know how you're doing your church history stuff, but I would get those names down where you at least recognize them as the Bible-believing crowd. I gave you a little information on on both of them. A lot of those guys uh, you'll you'll read about or you'll hear about, and now it'll have some relevance to you. Um, You know, and just things like that that you'll want to remember. The other night when we went to see... uh, a Robin Hood, you know, there right in the middle of the movie was what we just talked about a couple of weeks ago, Richard the Lionhearted, you know. And, uh, you know, you get a context for things like that. That's really what history is. History provides a context. And that's what most people don't have today. They don't have a context. So last time we went through all the Bible-believing groups, and we pretty much laid all of them out. And you have a fair understanding now of the people who were really bringing it through. And we went all the way back to the early 1st and 2nd century and then kind of put them in a catalogic order for you. So everything there is pretty much laid out that you need to get those guys and know who they are. And uh, tonight, we're going, to, uh, uh, we're going to deal with the corruption that has taken place in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. And anything that, uh, anything that is built on man or the flesh is a religion or really anything is going to wind up being very, 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 very sinful. Uh, And I don't care how it looks. Most charismatic churches uh, and most legalistic churches that hold to a legalistic system of of spirituality, they usually have a lot of of problems uh, in their churches uh, simply because, uh, you know, man-made laws always are going to bring about 
man-made corruption. It's just all there is to it because uh, it becomes a false spirituality and therefore that it lends itself to the flesh. The flesh is something that we all know that you never, you can't give it a, an inch or a yard because it'll, it'll take your whole world. And that's basically what it does when you build a church or a religion around fleshy things that are man-made fleshly things. There's going to be no end to that because to maintain that, then you have to put on a false spirituality. You have to add all the fake stuff and phony stuff to it. Pretty soon it gets pretty much out of control. But the, we, uh, we're going to go through this time. I want you to turn back to uh, Matthew here real quick, and I want, to, I want to lay a concept here that we can start from. When we start to study the popes, here's what we're going to, you're going to get into here. Matthew chapter 16. Now, this is where the Roman Catholic Church uh, takes its authority for their papal office or the, the Pope. And it goes back to uh, Matthew chapter 16. And in verse uh, 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that the son of man, I the Son of Man am? And, and they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, uh, Elias and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, I know we're not into this tonight. This is not our focus, but you want to mark that verse right there about Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Um, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that show you that Jeremiah is probably going to come back in the tribulation period, as is some of the other prophets. That's not in there by accident. And it just so happens that Jeremiah, in his book and his writings, pictures uh, the tribulation saints. He's the only man in the Bible ever told not to marry. And, uh, you know, he's a type of 144,000 who are to be virgins. So, um, and all of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, as is Lamentations, which he writes after that, is all tribulation period doctrinally. So, uh, you just want to mark that in there. I know we're not, we're in church history tonight and not this, but, you know, you got to get that if you don't have it. And then he says on in verse 15, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is the place where the Roman Catholic Church, you want to know this, this is where they begin their, their papal succession. They teach that all of their popes come from Peter, that Peter, Peter is the first pope, and that from Peter uh, it goes down through a line of succession, and every pope is a successor some way of Peter uh, in what he did and, and, and takes over from there. And so this is the base that they're going to get it. And what they base it on, obviously, is verse 18, where he says unto thee, and thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so they say right there that he's building the church on Peter. And of course, if you read the context, nothing could be farther from the truth. Putting it into context, just so you understand that if you ever deal with a Catholic, 
he asked Peter in verse, or he asked the disciples in verse 15, who do men say they were? Peter chimed up and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a good answer. That's a true answer. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, telling Peter that that's the right statement. And then he says in verse 13, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He's not saying thou, you're Peter and you're the rock I'm going to build it on. He says your name is Peter, and the rock that, that you just confessed that I am, see, he asked Peter who he was. Peter says, thou art the Christ of the Son of the living God. He confessed who, he, what, who Christ really was. What he's saying in verse 18, he's saying, Peter, God revealed that to you. And upon this rock, the rock that Peter just confessed was the Christ, the Son of the living God, is where he's going to build his church. Now, that tells you right there that the church is built on Christ. It's Christ's church. How you could ever read the book of Ephesians and think it's Peter's church when it tells you that it's Christ's church. And if that wasn't all, look at verse 19. Now, and I've known, I've known Christians that when they get into debates with Catholics or they try to witness the Catholics, you know, and the Catholics pull that, they try to, you know, they try to go to the Greek and prove that Peter means a stone, you know, so it could have been a rock and all, and all that goofy stuff. You know, Peter may have meant bulldozer for all I know. That's really not part of the issue. Here's how you know it's not talking about Peter. Here's why you know the church is not built on Peter. And it's that little thing I've taught you so many years that so many you just don't pay attention to, that little thing about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It will unravel and fix more problems in your Bible of defining things if you just follow that little simple rule. How do I know that Peter can't be the apostle that the church is built on? Verse 19, and I will give unto these the king of the kingdom of heaven. Peter has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. His, his writings and what he does have to do with the kingdom of heaven, and that is to the nation of Israel. He's nothing to do with the kingdom of God, nothing to do with the church. And of course, right there, if you know your Bible, you know that Peter could never be the foundation of what the church is built on because Peter is the apostle to the nation of Israel. It's Paul that is the apostle to the church, to the Gentiles, and the church is not built on him either. It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ. So you got to have that foundation because when we start studying the popes, you're going to see, and if you talk to your Catholic friend today, uh, they, the Catholic church basically teaches and has taught uh, since it come up with that concept that uh, all of the popes are in succession of Peter, that Peter was their first pope. Along with that, there's never any proof anywhere, shape, or form where Peter was ever in Rome. Uh, we don't have time to get into it tonight, and I'm not going to uh, uh, mess with it, but uh, uh, if you really want to get underneath the rocks and figure out how this thing works, if you'd go over there to the last, I think it's the last chapter in Romans, he tells you the, who, the two apostles that are in Rome, see? And it ain't Peter. It ain't Peter. But that's, that's about the ninth level of Bible study. We won't have to worry about that tonight. But anyway, that's what we're starting with here. So you want to mark this passage in your notes and maybe in your Bible. Now, this, is where, uh, this is where the Roman Catholic Church builds it. And, of course, you want to add to that Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a slap in the face to the Roman Catholic Church because in that passage back there, it tells you that there are two rocks. One is a small rock, R-O-C-K. That'll be the Roman Catholic Church rock. The other one is our rock, and that's capitalized. 
If that wasn't enough, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says that they all drank from that spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. See, no-brainer, no-brainer, no-brainer. But when you're dealing with Catholics, you don't have people with brains, so don't worry about it. Now, we're in the, the thousand-year period here, and we've learned some things about this. Uh, we've learned that this is where the Bible says that during this time period, uh, the uh, Thyatira and Sardis, this is where Satan's seat is. And this is where the Bible talks about the depths of Satan. And I told you before that the Dark Ages were nothing more than a period of time when the Roman Catholic Church comes to, to, to the forefront as the most powerful nation uh, the world has ever seen and literally runs the world uh, by trying to wipe out New Testament Christianity. And so by the time we get to 500 A.D., um, the office of Pope has become the supreme seat of power. And uh, it's absolutely uh, unprecedented in history. And it's something that you, uh, that you want to remember. Now, the Roman Catholic Church always follows this pattern, and this is something that, uh, uh, you know, you want to follow here. So let's, uh, let's come on down here. We'll look at it. He's established his office. The Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, has established his office as the office of God in a temple on a golden throne and has uh, fostered the idea uh, that, uh, that he is the vicar of Christ. Now, the vicar of Christ basically means, when you hear that term, and it's an inscription on the Pope's head on a little miter that he wears. And uh, by the way, if you took the, uh, the title up there, the Vicar of Christ, and you take the Roman numerals that's in that name and add up the Roman numerals, it's 666. <laughs> so God does have a sense of humor. But uh, the devil has established his office as the office uh, of God in the temple on this earth on a golden throne, and has fostered the idea that he is the vicar of Christ. The term vicar of Christ means that the Pope is the replacement of Christ on this earth. He's Christ advocate. In other words, when, when I teach you, I teach you that when Christ went back to heaven, he replaced himself with three things, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the church. The Catholic Church teaches when Christ, Jesus Christ went back to heaven, he replaced himself with the Pope. And so in that sense, uh, he is the... He is the infallible presence of God on this planet. And uh, because of that, and because he represents God, anything he says will be absolute and infallible. Now, this is the word you want to remember and write down. This is called ex cathedra. It doesn't mean that they've got an extra cathedral that they need on when, the, when they have an overflow of people. Ex cathedra. That means whatever he says is infallible. The Catholic Church is a strange way of, of, of uh, when you'll see it when we come down through here. Roman Catholic Church has a strange way of not caring whether the Pope, what his moral fiber is. Uh, they don't care of all of the things that he may do. Uh, they get past that, and they all believe that that doesn't matter, that, that when he speaks, he speaks ex cathedra. In other words, whatever he says is the very voice of God and uh, and, and uh, to be taken as truth and without any error in it or out any questioning in it. And you're going to find that when you come down through history that this is why the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church follows the same line of reasoning uh, that all the other false religions do, and that simply is they have to get around the Bible to survive. 
They have to get around the Bible to survive. And when you talk to a Jehovah Witness, the way he gets around the Bible to survive is he gets around the Bible by having his New World Translation. You talk to a Mormon, the way he gets around the Bible is he got Joe Smith's Book of Mormons. Every cult and every false religion will have some other writing or some other book or something else that will take the place of the written Word of God. A charismatic has his healings, his experiences, and that's how he gets around it. You're charismatic. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. The tongue shall cease, and tongues were for sign, and the Jew requires a sign. All he knows is, well, I talked in it, I got it, it's real. See, the Bible doesn't bother him at all. Now, here's what the Catholic Church does. And I've talked to many, many priests in my time, and I've asked them, I said, what do you do when, when the traditions of the church or the teachings of the church contradict the Bible? And his answer to me was, well, that will never happen. When I said, well, let me give you one where it did happen. And I said, what do you do with the fact that the Bible says in the book of Matthew that you're to call no man father upon your earth, and yet you want everybody to call you father? I said, that's a contradiction. And he tried to do a little song and dance, and he says, well, that's, that's, that's believe it or not, he said, well, that's talking about your earthly father. You should call him daddy and not father, you know, in an intimate. And I said, get out of here. I said, in the same passage, it's talking about rabbi. It's talking about religious leaders. And I, and, I, and, I, and I pinned him down, and he said, well, and I said, so what do you do when the Bible says one thing and church teaching or tradition says something else? What do you do? And his answer was very straightforward. He says, well, when, if it ever would contradict, we take tradition over the Bible. What the church says is over the, what the Bible says. And the reason for that is, is because this pope and the church speaks ex cathedra. So it really doesn't matter what the Bible says. This is something that most people don't understand when they start dealing with Catholics. That the Catholic doesn't go by the same rules that we go by. The Bible means nothing to him. I mean, um, you know, and so he pretty much follows the teachings of the church. And the Bible doesn't really matter one way or the other because that's just where he's come from. But uh, this concept of ex cathedra, you can imagine how politically that was a, a, a great thing to have, uh, and religiously. Uh, but it was, in, it was introduced by, uh, you know, the, um, by the political entourage that went on and all the intrigue that was introduced by the relationship uh, uh, and the favors that were done for the kings of Europe. Uh, it was these armies of these nations that the Pope used to force uh, to, to uh, uh, focus the power of his throne uh, all the way up to around 1300, 1400 when the idea of, of uh, the sinlessness became official Roman Catholic doctrine. So they used this concept to do whatever they wanted to do. It's nice being the guy who, who you, whatever you say is what everybody has to follow. Back in the old, uh, in, the, in the Dark Ages time, when the Roman Catholic Church, and you're going to see this, if you were a king and you were a Catholic king, you couldn't do anything without the Pope's blessing. And the Pope made sure that he married Protestant nations like England to Catholic nations like Spain, where Philip of Spain would have a daughter who would become the wife of somebody in England who was a Protestant, and thereby tying up the alliances. And then the king, whatever they wanted, they had to go through the pope. And the pope would do that or not do that based on the fact that uh, or whatever favors he did for you, you bet, believe you, you did some back. I mean, and so he, he had complete control over that. And uh, when you make up the rules and whatever you say is infallible and nobody can challenge it, well, you pretty much can run the world and that's just about what they did. 
And it was, uh, it was these armies of these nations that the popes used, uh, you know, up to about, like I said, 1400, up to the Reformation. Uh, whenever the idea of uh, somebody was stepping out of line, or the Waldensians, the Albigensians, uh, it was a thing where they, they used these armies to come down, and uh, the pope had total, total, uh, total uh, say in where they went. All of the Catholic nations uh, shown allegiance to the Pope because the Pope had the power even more than the king. And uh, he, could, uh, he, could, he could do whatever he wanted to do, and that's exactly what happened. And so you see how it works. But with all that, uh, you know, uh, along with the idea of, of the Pope being Christ's replacement came the idea of supreme power and authority on things and earth. And what we're going about to look at here is the condition of the church as it's laid out in history, and as history sees it, and the corruption of that church when it leaves the authority of the Word of God. And as I said, this is where in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, it tells us very clearly that this church is where Satan's seat is. He's seated in this church. There's no question in anybody's mind who even is a little bit of a Bible believer who knows the Bible or anything about history that we saw it in the crusade, that the devil's church is the Roman Catholic Church. There's no question about it. And part of the thing of learning church history and all the things about history is it helps you unlock everything that, uh, that, that the world wants to show you to mask what's really going on. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, we've been told all down through history that we've got to worry about this and fear this and fear that and fear this, and all that is a smokescreen. The thing you got to fear most and the thing you better keep your eye on is that great whore, Revelation chapter 18 and 19, because she's the one who's pulling the strings. And I don't care what anybody else says, that's the one you got to watch. This is where Satan's seat is, Revelation 2.13. This is, this is them that, that, that know the depths of Satan, Revelation chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. These are the people who are committing fornication with Jezebel and eat things sacrificed to idols. This is the Thyatira and the Sardis church period from 500 up to about 1500, the greatest nighttime of Bible Christianity. And as the Bible teaches, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And it's the reason why it's called the Dark Ages. It is called the Dark Ages because this is the blackest history in man's being. And uh, it was a time when the Roman Catholic Church uh, ruled the world. Well, we'll look at some of these, and we can't do all of these, but it'll give you an understanding of them. And there are some excellent books out, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a list of them here after a while as we start coming down through this. But our first guy we're going to talk about is a guy by the name of Pope Sergius, S-E-R-G-I-U-S, Pope Sergius III. And he reigned from about 904 to 911 A.D., uh, he attained the papal office, as many of them do, by murdering his successor, the guy he succeeded. The official record is available to anyone who can read it. It reads like an X-rated movie. Uh, he lived in open sin with a, with a prostitute called uh, Mazora, who bore him seven illegitimate children. He was described by the Roman Catholic writers of the day. And, and most of the things that, you know, when you start talking like this, not this crowd, but if you start talking like this in, a, in an open forum someplace, people go ballistic because it's obviously, you know, labeled as hate trash and literature and all that and, and hate mongering and all those stuff. But the bottom line is this. All this information I'm giving you 
is found in the Roman Catholic encyclopedias put out by the Roman Catholic historians down through history. This stuff wasn't written by Jack Chick or Peter Ruckman or, or uh, Avril Manhattan. What I'm giving you here, can, you can go to any library in town and dig out or any, get any Catholic set of encyclopedias. The Catholic Church did do one thing very well. They documented the history of their church very well. And they have, uh, even though their list of popes don't always agree because they get some and they take out and put in. And, but the bottom line is it's pretty accurate. And so this material is not written by somebody who hates Catholic. This material is written by Roman Catholic writers uh, of the day that he lived who kept an accurate record that had been preserved in the Vatican. And uh, the writers of his day called him a monster and a, terror, uh, and a terrorizing criminal. Uh, through his immoral acts with his concubines, he changed the palace uh, into a parliament of illegitimate sons uh, who and, and had the worst morals than even himself. Uh, all behind the scenes was the prostitute Mazora, who played the real role of pope and set up her sons as she saw fit through him, making them cardinals and giving them a position of power. And... Uh, and uh, and with the Pope Sergius comes what the Roman Catholic writers of history call the rule of the harlots. And if you would go into a Roman Catholic uh, uh, encyclopedia and you would look at this time period starting with Pope Sergius III, it is called by the Roman Catholic historians the rule of the harlots. The women that were manipulating it behind the scene. In 914, Pope John X became Pope and he rules for 14 years, but Mazzara didn't like him and kills him in 928 to make way for her new lover, Pope Leo VI. His office was short-lived, just one year, for he was assassinated by guess who? Uh, for giving his heart to another woman who was even worse than Mazzara. I mean, uh, sex in the city's got nothing on the Roman Catholic Church, I guarantee you. Not long after this, she put her own illegitimate son uh, from good Pope Sergius III who became John the 11th. But in some bloody encounters with other children of God uh, for the throne, he was killed in 955. So in 955, uh, Pope John the 11th, uh, 12, uh, takes over in the apostolic line of true successors from Holy Peter. Uh, he was the prostitute's grandson. He became so vile and corrupt that the cardinals brought him up on charges. He refused to appear and threatened to excommunicate all of them uh, on the follow, uh, and refused to follow or be, appear in the following charges. Uh, he put the eyes of a high Catholic official out uh, who later died. He set fire to a building uh, for no apparent reason just to watch it burn. He drank a toast to the devil. He played dice games and invoked the aid of demons. He obtained money by unfair means, fornication. Uh, the noted Roman Catholic writer, uh, Clearmore uh, Luprad, uh, that'd be C-R-E-M-O-R-N-E-L-U-I-T-P-R-A-D, said of him, no honest lady dared to show herself in public, for Pope John had no respect for virgins, married women, or widows, or young boys. They were all defiled uh, by him. He turned the papal palace into a, a, a house of ill repute. 
He himself was killed in bed, caught in the act of adultery by an enraged husband who didn't go along with a doctrine. <laughs> Give your all to the Lord. I mean, that was something I had many, many years ago. When I, I've grown up, I don't say those things anymore. It caught me. I just ran over it before I saw it. Pope Boniface the Seventh, 984 to 985, maintained his position through paying off the right people. The Bishop of Orleans, that'll be, in our world, New Orleans, you see in the movie the other night those of you that went to it uh, how those things uh, uh, all shadow in America and they're all connected back did you see in England and in France uh, the names over there they had a place in England called York see that well for us that's New York see when they came over they wanted they named a lot of those places after the places they were in Europe but they put the word new in front of it so you have New Orleans, because in France, there's a place called Orleans, France, which is hairy, hotbed of Roman Catholic stuff. In uh, England, you had a place called York. So when they came over, they called it New York. And a lot of those places, especially up in the Boston area and all along the East Coast, when they first came over, you find that. You don't find that so much as they moved out west. Uh, but uh, up there in the early part of America, they were carrying the names over. Brunswick's another one. Lots of them. Uh, especially in Massachusetts and, and Connecticut and some of those places. They're all names of, of places that they uh, have over in Europe. Uh, I said Pope Boniface VII, 984 to 985, maintained his position by paying off the right people. The Bishop of Orleans called him a monster of guilt, reeking in blood and filth, and called him the Antichrist. He had at least three other popes killed to secure his position, the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 19, page 132, I'll document most of this stuff, says the common people thought he was in league with the devil. Very perceptive on their part, I must say. Pope John the 15th, 985 to 996, split the church's finances with his kinfolk and earned for himself the reputation of being corrupt in all his acts. Benedict the Eighth, you can see they're, they're succeeding right down as we go here pretty good. Benedict VIII, 1012 to 1024, bought the office with open bribery. John XIV, 1024 to 1033, also bought the office and passed from a priest to a pope through all the Roman Catholic hierarchy in just 24 hours. Pope Benedict IX, 1033 to 1045, became pope as a boy of 12 years old through a money brokering bargage with two powerful families of Rome. He committed sodomy and adultery in broad daylight, robbed graves, and finally was run out of Rome. All this is typical. And the reason why I'm giving you a taste of this is to help you understand uh, with the greatest event that's coming up that we're going to get into next week, and that is the Reformation. But you've got to see some of these things were leading up to it. Finally, the act of buying the office of Pope was so popular that secular rulers came in and stopped it by setting up the popes themselves, but that didn't work either. It goes back to this. When you have a man-made religion that is built on the flesh, the flesh is going to run wild with it. That's why in churches, even in some Baptist churches, you can't legislate morals uh, on how people, uh, what they wear, what they dress, or whatever they do. Because of the fact that when, when everything is set up on a set of rules of something that you do to your flesh, it's going to run wild. It's going to run crazy. 
And that's why the way you got to, if you ever build a biblical church and you want to get people to do what's right, you don't tell them what to wear, tell them what not to wear. You go after and preach after their heart. And you teach them to build a relationship with God in their heart. And whatever they do from that part of their heart is with God will be the right thing to do. But man, that's, I guess that's too easy. I don't know. But you're going to see that the Roman Catholic Church is exactly today what it is back then. And all this stuff today of the, of the priests, you know, uh, uh, molesting children, you know, and, and the, the people, older boys, and all the things that go along with it. it. It's always been that way. People look at it and they think, well, that's a terrible thing. Man, you haven't seen the tip of the iceberg, I guarantee you. When you take men and put them in a celibate state, where they don't have any outlet for their natural sexual desires and you lock them up in monasteries or you lock them, uh, the uh, nuns up in, in convents and you, you tell them for religious purposes they can't uh, cohabit with other men and women, the opposite sex, or get married or have an outlet for the natural release that they have. What do you think is going to happen? Especially when it's the false church and it's built on nothing in the Bible and God has nothing to do with it. And it's Satan's church. This is what happens. What you're seeing today is, is it goes, has been going on for a long, long, long time, but people don't know history. Or better yet, they don't want to know history. And it's something that, uh, that uh, when you see those things, everybody gets shocked. You're kidding, shocked. Man, it's been going on for 2,000 years. And uh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, if you knew the half the stuff that was going on and taking place, there's a book back there by, uh, by Jack Chick on there. I don't know if we have it at the time, but there's a book back there called... Uh, Slipped right out of my mind. But it's a book written by a priest that taught younger priests how to use the confessional to, to seduce women. When they come in and under the, under the guise of confessing your sin to God, he would ask the right questions, find out who was loose and, and, and doing all this stuff, and then that's what he'd exploit. I mean, uh, absolutely incredible. But that's the stuff that's going on. Priest, the woman, and the confessional. Yeah, priest, the woman, and the confessional. That's the name of the book. That's Henry III of Germany set up Clement II in 10, uh, 1046 to 1047 in the office because no Catholic clergyman could be found who was not corrupt. Pope Innocent III, uh, 1108 to 1216, 1198 to 1216, excuse me, um, had, had over 2 million people killed and started the famous Inquisition that we'll talk about in a little bit. For the next 500 years, 30 million people who loved honesty, purity, and the Lord Jesus and the Word of God were murdered in cold blood for the sake of the Roman Catholic doctrine and their godliness. And these facts are suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church. The, their books are banned. And, uh, and whenever you start to talk about things like this, the cry comes out, well, you shouldn't speak against another man's religion. Uh, but the bottom line is the Roman Catholic Church today controls every major uh, country on earth and certainly controls the news and the, and the paper and the media and the press. And the truth uh, cannot be printed if it was no, uh, uh, if, if, the, if the truth can't be printed because the Roman Catholic Church always squelched it. Let me tell you something. If the truth was ever put out of the Roman Catholic Church and what they've done in just the last hundred years, the last hundred years, Forget Dark Ages. If you just took what she's been involved in the political stuff of Vietnam and Korea and World War II and World War I and, and uh, what she'd done down through uh, with against the nation of Israel and, and the Holocaust and the things that she did and the things that took place here, 
if that was just printed and, and people saw what happened, and you were a Roman, you couldn't even get a job as a janitor in this country. But you see, she runs the press. She runs and controls everything. And if you go down in history, you'll always find in this country there's always some high-level Roman Catholic uh, that uh, is a cardinal that's running the show. And the last one we had here was, uh, I'm not sure who it is now, but the one that was the biggie all back through the uh, end of the war up through the 60s and the 70s was Cardinal Spellman of New York. He was called the Pope of New York. And he basically was the Pope's hatchet man in this country, and he made sure that everything from the federal government right down to every organization on this planet, every news media right on this line was right on day. Remember, Ted, uh, remember uh, um, uh, Jack Kennedy, who was president? Well, his daddy uh, was the, the old man, Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, uh, was the ambassador to England during World War II. And Joe Ken, Joseph Kennedy made his fortune and made all his money in bootleg wick, uh, liquor back during the Prohibition times. And those guys were Roman Catholic up one side and down the other, and everything that they did, they were connected to the Roman Catholic Church on it. Everything that they did. And that's why Jack Kennedy could do all the things that he did when he was office and have all the affairs that he had and do everything he wanted to do, and nobody ever heard about it. Just now it leaks out about Marilyn Monroe and his connection with Traficana and the mafia and all of the stuff and how they were sharing a girl together and all those things. What's it been, 50 years since he's been killed now? 60 years maybe, 50 years? Just now it's leaking out. Why, if that would have been somebody that wasn't a Catholic, that stuff would have been all over the, all over the, all over the world. When Ted Kennedy was out at a drunken party one night and come to the point where he'd taken Mary Jo Capecti home after some party and driving over a bridge up there and the car went off the road and she grounded down there and he swam out and no one got away. Uh, and there was rumors flying around about the fact that she was pregnant and he killed her because she was going to mess up his political life and all of those things. There wasn't one investigation about it anywhere, shape, or form. You know why? They control it all, that's why. They control it all, that why. But at the end, you all get it. When old Teddy died here about last year and split hell wide open, I'm sure Mary Jo was waiting for him without a drink of water. But anyway, it's, uh, it's something. Pope Boniface VIII, 1294 to 1303, practiced sorcery. He called Christ a hypocrite. He professed to be an atheist. He denied life after death. He was a murderer and a sex pervert. The official record about him says... He said, and I quote, to enjoy oneself and lie carnally with women or with boys is no more a sin than rubbing one's hand together to get warm. And I'm sure he was speaking at cathedral when he said that. <laughs> Yet he is the Pope. And this is what I'm trying to show you. Yet he is the Pope that wrote the Unum Sanctum. And the Unum Sanctum, another term you need to know, which sometimes is called Papal bull, which I like that too. The Pope is called the bull. You're going to find the word bull connected with the Pope. Papal bull, bull being uh, a strong force or identifying force, but it's all bull when you get down to it. Uh, he was the one who wrote the Unum Sanctum, which officially declares that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church, and outside it, no one can be saved from a guy like that. Years ago, I, I picked up, I don't remember where I picked him up, but I, I, uh, Catholics don't like to get called on the carpet. A lot of the things that they say, they don't want to, if you find out what the real hot buttons are, 
you're a lot better dealing with them on that because they don't really want to deal with it. And one of the things that they don't want to deal with because they always want to give the impression that they're always loving everybody and everybody is fine. Uh, we're the true church, but we love you all, da-da-da-da. Well, what they don't ever want to, they, they have a really tough time with is when you nail their hide on the fact that if you're not a member of the Roman Catholic Church, that there's no way you can go to heaven and you're going to hell, that she is the only true church and there's salvation and no other church. They really believe that. They just don't say that because they, it's not popular good press. Well, I got a hold of a couple of uh, Roman Catholic uh, elementary textbooks uh, that somebody had given me, you know, and, and, and in those very textbooks that they're teaching, you know, eight or nine-year-olds in, in their Catholic, you know, schools, it's talking about the very virgin marriage in the Catholic Church, and it states right in that as clear as day that the Catholic Church is the only true church, and there is no salvation in is no salvation for mankind in any other church other than the Holy Mother Church. And so I just let them, I I bait them, let them say that, let them argue the fact that that's not true, that we don't really believe that, da 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 da. Then I just open the book and give it to them, and it's their book. And of course, it's things like that that they they don't like to admit, they don't like to deal with, they believe it. And in their areas where they enforce it, they do. But on your everyday thing, they're not, they don't ever give that impression. And uh, during the Council of Constance, 10, uh, 1410 to 1415, three and sometimes four popes were reigning at the same time. Uh, the confusion was incredible. All four were calling the other the Antichrist and demonic. And one of them, uh, one of these men, uh, Pope John XXIII, was called in for his conduct as a pope. The charges uh, that were uh, laid upon him were witnessed by 37 witnesses. Fornication, rape, adultery, incest, sodomy, murder, keeping a harem, the sexual violation of over 300 nuns. I don't think Joe Namath did that good when he was in college. It's incredible. It's during this time, and this is where you begin to see a guy by the name of Dante. Dante was a, was a writer, unsaved man. Dante, the great writer and also the great atheist. It was at this time that he visited Rome. And he wrote later after seeing the corruption that the Vatican was a sewer of corruption, that the popes would be assigned to the lowest parts of hell. Now, he's the one who wrote the book, Dante's Inferno, if you remember reading that. And he was a writer during the Dark Ages, and he went to Rome, and he actually saw the corruption, and he was, he was already an atheist, but it's a little wonder why he ever thought, uh, he ever thought um, the way he did because of what he saw. And that's the downside to it, because many, many, many people uh, saw it for what it was. And, of course, the unfortunate thing is they label it all the same thing. So that's where they're at. Pope Pius II, 1458 to 1464. He was the father of many illegitimate children. He spoke openly and taught classes on how to use the confessional to seduce women and young boys. And taught uh, all of these things. Pope Paul II, 1464 to 1471 maintained a house full of concubines. Uh, his papal a crown is said to have been worth a palace in, in its value. It's not uncommon during these times 
that the popes and the religious leaders, not just the popes, I'm talking about the cardinals, the priests, and everybody. The corruption is just everywhere. I'm just showing you the top level of it. It was not unlike many, many times in many of the medieval towns that they kept brothels for their priests and for their bishops and for that they simply would go there and leave their wives and their daughters and their kids alone. I mean, that is unbelievable, but that's exactly uh, what happened in many, many cases. And it's incredible what was taking place. Pope Sixtus the Fourth. He financed his holy wars by uh, by papal positions, selling them to the highest bidder. He had two illegitimate children by his mistress, whom he made uh, the boys cardinals. His lifestyles and sexual parties rivaled the pagan Roman Caesars in the time of pagan Rome back in the early before Constantine. Pope Innocent. Uh, 1482 to 1492, had 16 children by various women. He did not deny these children, for the marriages were celebrated in the Vatican. Like all other popes, he sold the papal offices for vast sums of money to be to the highest bidder. He also permitted bullfights in St. Peter's Square. Alexander VI, 1492 to 1503, considered by many as the vilest pope, had many children by a common harlot and her daughters, bought the office of Pope, lived in open incest with his own two sisters, later was in an open uh, love relationship with his own daughter. Uh, On October 31st, 1501, uh, he conducted a sex orgy in the Vatican, uh, and it it just goes on. Pope Paul III, 1534 to 1549, even the pro-Catholic Life magazine, this will be Life magazine July 5th, 1963, uh, even the pro-life Catholic Life magazine said that he fathered three sons and a daughter as a cardinal. On the day of his coronation, he celebrated their baptisms and that of his grandchildren. He appointed two of his teenage nephews as cardinals, uh, always sought advice through spiritual matters by astrology and by uh, mediums. That'd be witchcraft. Pope Leo X, 1503 to 1521 was appointed to 27 church offices before he was 13 years old. He was taught to regard the office as a pure source of revenue. He bought the papal chair and developed the burning of heretics as a divine appointment. It was during this time that Martin Luther, still a parish priest, and we're going to talk about Martin Luther you're going to find the reason why I'm laying out this corruption like this and, and laying out all of these things that are going on is simply because that you're going to find that some of these people that were in the church, I know many of them, if not most of them, were corrupt, but there were some good people in those churches who really loved God. But the emptiness of not finding God and the corruption that they saw uh, what was going on around them really, really bothered them. And one of those guys uh, was a guy by the name of Martin Luther. And there's probably in church history more written about Martin Luther than any other, uh, any other um, uh, guy in history. Uh, Martin Luther, when we get to it, uh, is a kingpin uh, in, the, in what happens in church history. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it. We'll have a great time with Martin Luther. And... Uh, He traveled to Rome and saw the godless corruption. 
Luther later said, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. The shocking scenes was the source of Luther's hatred for Rome and the papal structure. Uh, and when Luther really, uh, for many years, uh, was a thorn in the Roman Catholic Church's side. He was the one man that they could just never get rid of. He was fearless. He was one of the most unbelievable, fearless men for God that you're ever going to read about in history. And uh, he had no problem of putting the Pope in his place where everybody else was calling him his holiness. Luther called him his hellishness. Where everybody else was calling him holy father, he was calling most hellish father. And he was a fearless guy. Somebody told Martin Luther one time when he did, and you got to remember now, when he's doing this, man, he's, I mean, he didn't have the support of anybody. The Catholic people didn't like him because he was going against the Catholic Church, but the Bible groupers didn't like him either because he was Catholic. And they didn't, they didn't appreciate it. the fact that, that he was against the church meant nothing to them. He was not a Bible believer in the sense that they were. But he certainly was God's tool and God's instrument. And what Martin Luther does is he breaks the back of the Roman Catholic Church uh, and really sets off the Reformation, which we'll see here. But you begin to see how the corruption is going uh, and it's just incredible what's taking place. One day as Luther walked through the streets that led to St. Peter's Square, he saw a statue and it puzzled him. For it was a, a statue of a pope, but to his disbelief, it was a statue also of a woman. Uh, and this is the famous Pope Joan, not John, Joan, G-O-A-N, Pope Joan the first and Pope Joan the last. And um, she came up through the Roman Catholic schools and disguised herself as a man. When the Pope Leo died, she uh, she reigned two full years as a full-fledged pope. While taking part in a procession, she gave birth to a baby and died in the process. And the statue was erected in her honor. Forty years after Martin Luther's death, the statue was taken down. In recent times, the story has been uh, suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church for obvious reasons. Uh, but almost all the Roman Catholic writers uh, before the Reformation list her into the line of the popes. And uh, you'll find it in a book called The History of the Roman Pontinus on page 128. You'll find it in a book called Ecumenicalism and Romanism in page 59 through 60. Uh, a great book on the popes is a book called Bauer's History of the Popes. You'll find her in volume one on page 226. And uh, it's a thing where uh, it's kind of hard to deny it. Uh, it was a number of years ago, and believe it or not, this is where it goes. It was a number of years ago, 20 years ago, I guess, that uh, the Roman Catholic Church was um, dealing with the fact that they had a woman pope. And it was one of the archbishops or somebody that said, how did they, had deal, how did they deal with that? And his answer back, and this is a goofy answer, but this is goofy things they say. His answer was that the Pope had conferred on her and changed her into a man. <laughs> so that's how you get around those things. Kind of like the two heads of John the Baptist I told you about before, you know, one when he was a kid, one when he was an adult. 
And so we see the corruption that was, has taken place during the Thyatira and the Sardis church period. The reign of Jezebel and the fornication of the Roman Catholic Church with the kings of the earth. All a person has to do is read the evidence, uh, not written by anti-Catholics, like I said, but the Roman Catholic written, a record written by Roman Catholics. They did a very good job of recording their history. And obviously the writers had no forethought of somebody reading this 1,500 years down the line. But they wrote it as they saw it, and the Roman Catholic Church is stuck with it. Another good book on Pope Joan is that Babylon mystery religion we've got back there in the bookstore. There's a whole section on her back there. It even shows you the picture of the statue. But for anybody, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, this starts out with just a, uh, that old biblical principle, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It starts, out, uh, it starts out very small and divides it up into a thing. In fact, back in Matthew, there is a, there's a parable on this. Come back to Matthew 13 again. I'll show it to you. And this parable is directly to the devil and the Roman Catholic Church. be in Matthew chapter 13 and pick it up in verse uh, 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now that's a reference to the Satan's church dealing with the Antichrist in particular, but starting with the growth of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was like a grain of a mustard seed, very small at its beginning, which a man took. See that thing? A man took and hid in the field. Field's a type of the world. And then of course that thing grows up and it's the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree. That tree will be the Antichrist back in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 31 and Daniel chapter 4. And notice it becomes a tree that, so that the birds of the air, those will be demons, lodge in the branches thereof. And of course, uh, that's all dealing with the uh, that birds and demons will be Isaiah 34 and Revelation 18.2. And that's exactly what you're dealing with. This thing starts out very small, and it grows. And uh, it's running, by the time we get to the Dark Ages, it's running the known world. And you've got to remember, the known world was very small. We're just talking about the Middle East and Europe and uh, Africa, but she, she mainly in Europe. But as time goes on, she becomes a ruler of the whole world. The whole world. All a person has to do is read the evidence, not written by the, like I said, not written by any Catholic writers, but the Roman Catholic record written by Roman Catholics, and it's very clear uh, what, was, what has taken place. Obviously, in our study, we cannot deal with all of the popes and their sins and corruption, don't really need to, but uh, this is what you get to see. Some of the books that you'll want to get, and I'll come down through here in some of these, uh, a very good one will be the one, the priest, the woman, and the confessional. That's a very good one. I don't have the writers of all these, but another one is called Medieval Italy, which is very good. Little Haley's Bible Handbook has a good section on it. 
Another book is called The Other Side of Rome. That's a very good book. Uh, any good Catholic encyclopedia, they all would be good. Believe it or not, another secular writer who uh, is kind of uh, wrote a history of the world was a guy by the name of Will Durant. Will Durant wrote about 18 volumes on, on everything in history. He's an unsaved guy, but uh, he, he comes at it from a purely uh, no bias. You know what I mean? He's not a saved guy, got an axe to grind against the church. He's just an unsaved guy that sees it for what he is. And he's got several volumes out that I think are very good. Uh, one of them is Will Durant, The Story of History. And then another one is the, uh, uh, the, history of, the Story of Civilization. He has one on the history of the Reformation, uh, which I think is good. Uh, another book out there is a book called The History of Church Councils, which is pretty good. Obviously, uh, there's a book out there called The History of the Reformation. I think that may have been Will Durant's books. And then you have, obviously, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, you have a book called The Rise and the Fall of the Roman Catholic Church. I already gave you the ecumenicalism and Romanism. Bauer's History of the, uh, of the Popes is a good one. There's a book out by a guy by the name of Bottinger. And the name of that book is Roman Catholicism. It was a standard textbook and the best book for many, many years. I think it might be out of print. We may have some back there. I don't know. We, I tried to get them at one point. And then obviously Babylon Mystery Religion, you know, is, uh, is, a, is, a, is another great one. <clears throat> we could spend, you know, we could spend the rest of our natural lives going through the material. But I want you to see what the corruption is doing. This is the devil's church. This is Satan's church. And he's operating this thing for world control. One. Two, to get Jerusalem. Three, to wipe out New Testament Christianity. That's what he's doing. <clears throat> All of the corruption we're talking about is just true of any organization that um, is unsaved, unregenerated, and not operating in the spirit of God and devil running it. As long as the devil gets what he wants out of it, he really doesn't care what they do, and this is why it all breaks down the way that it does. Um, we've looked at the Bible-believing groups, and we saw uh, some of the great preachers and in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, how they were suffered and persecuted and injustices were done to them. Uh, but uh, I think the greatest Roman cruelty that the Rome ever put out was what we're going to talk about here in the last section of this, and that would be what we call the, the Inquisition. And you hear a lot about the Inquisition, but most people don't really know much about it. And uh, the Inquisition is a uh, setup that uh, was started in, uh, in Spain all the way back in 1170. And it was set up by a, a monk by the name of St. Dominic. And you will find today that the uh, order of monks that he founded is still alive and they still bear his name, the Dominican monks. They come from, from him. In 1254, Pope Alexander IV not only gave him the authority to be the first inquisitor, but he had the authority to establish a satanic system throughout all Europe and Italy. All popes after him supported the efforts of the councils held to the inquirer 
as to the one's belief in God as far as Rome's interest uh, was concerned. And you're going to find that the Inquisition is, here's what they did. And this started in Spain, it went up through Italy, it went through all of Europe. And in some places, believe it or not, the Inquisition wasn't over till in the 1800s in Spain. What they did is they, the Inquisition was what it says, like uh, the word inquire. And they would take Bible believers and they would inquire or they would interrogate them on what they believed about God, the Bible, and the church. If they, if you believed that the Roman Catholic Church was the true church and you went along with everything, you were okay. If you did not believe it and uh, you were branded a heretic, then it was up to the Inquisition to exact a confession out of you so they could pray for your soul and you could go to heaven. The way that they exacted the confession out of you was through torture. And some of the most heinous, unbelievable things that you could ever think a man could do to somebody, another human being. But the Inquisition, the whole godless mess was built on the aspect of getting a confession out of somebody who they thought was a heretic that they might then cleanse their soul so they could go to heaven. And of course, if you're a true Bible believer, uh, it's going to be a long night because uh, he's not going to do that. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, it's a system that uh, has been the model for many, many things all down through, uh, all down through uh, the history. Uh, you're going to find that the, uh, uh, the inquisitors or the inquisition basically was the, uh, uh, what we would call the Gestapo of the Roman Catholic Church. They were the shock troops. They were, they were the Gestapo. They were the ones who would take you into whatever and they would torture you to find out who was who and who was where and who was involved in it. And uh, it was not a good thing to fall into their hands. In fact, it's no wonder, and most people don't even understand this, when Adolf Hitler organized his Third Reich in in the 1930s, um, he, being a Roman Catholic, was used by Pope Pius to uh, exonerate Europe of communists because communism threatened Roman Catholicism. They were two arch enemies. So again, through the political intrigue, the, the German Catholic Society, uh, who was the, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a group called the German Catholic League. It was run by a guy by the name of von Poppen. And he was head of the German Catholic League and also tied into the German, uh, Catholic German businessmen. They're the ones who got Hitler in in 1933 when he became chancellor. Uh, Hindenburg was still president, but they got him chancellor. And uh, shortly thereafter, Hindenburg, who was very old anyhow in his 90s, he died. And on the day he died, Hitler then combined the offices of president and chancellor and became the Fuhrer. And from that point on, Germany only had one one guy in charge. And of course, that was was, uh, Adolf Hitler for that time period. And he's a Roman Catholic. And uh, he builds around him 12 men, which I call the 12 apostles, just like uh, the Lord had around him. And everything that the Roman Catholic Church was already doing formed the model for what Adolf Hitler was doing. Adolf Hitler talked about having a Third Reich, a thousand-year reign by which uh, Germany would rule the world. And, of course, the uh, Third Reich 
has to have a second Reich. That would be Kaiser Wilhelm in 1918. The first Reich was the Roman Empire. That's why you're going to find all the symbolism between the Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church and, the, uh, and, uh, and Adolf Hitler. And uh, when the Hitler organized him from 33 to 45, he set up his uh, concentration uh, camps and his Gestapo and the SS after the Roman Catholic inquisitors, the Demonican monks. In fact, uh, the Teutonic Knights were Roman Catholic in their nature. We talked about them as long uh, uh, also with the, uh, the other group uh, that we talked about. When uh, Heinrich Himmler, who also was a Roman Catholic, when he uh, started his SS, he was the head of the SS, they had a, it was almost a religious thing. They had a place called uh, uh, Valvelberg Castle. And if you would go to Valvelberg Castle today, and it's still there, you can go see it. It's a tourist attraction. You would find that this is where the high leaders of the SS met. Again, they had uh, the high SS leaders were there. There were 12 seats, just like Knights of the Round Table. And um, they followed the traditions and all the things that uh, they all swore an allegiance to Adolf Hitler, just like the, uh, all the uh, people sw- sw- swore allegiance to the Pope. When uh, you were, went into the SS, uh, you had to, uh, an officer anyhow, uh, you had uh, you you got a dagger, and on that dagger was an inscription in Germany that uh, my honor is loyalty. And when you became an SS officer, uh, and there's pictures of them anywhere on the internet, you could find them. Uh, the Roman Catholic or the uh, the uh, SS had what they call their standards, their their flags, and they're also built after the Roman Empire. If you ever saw a movie. Uh, it featured the Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church. They all have those standards and those flags. Well, the Roman, they, Hitler had the same thing based on that model. What they would do, it was they would lay those, what they called them, standards. They were flags on a pole. They would lay them down and cross them in a, a cross pattern. And then that SS officer would take two fingers and put on that, uh, that pole and then raise his other two fingers, and he would, uh, he would swear a low, uh, an oath to allegiance to Adolf Hitler. If you would go over to the Vatican today, and this has been for time and eternity, so Adolf Hitler got the idea, and you would watch the swearing in of the Vatican Guard, which is the, the, uh, the again, is a very elite, a very elite organization that protects the Pope and the Vatican. When they are sworn in, they do the same thing. They lay down the cross standards of the Roman Catholic Church. They put two fingers on the vat and put two fingers up and swear an allegiance to the Pope. It's the same system. It's the same system. And, of course, uh, most people don't understand that. And um, Adolf Hitler was a Catholic. The guy who set up the uh, concentration camps was Hermann Goring. He was a Roman Catholic. The guy that ran the first one was Theodore Icke. He was a Roman Catholic. And, uh, you know, all the rest of the guys were Roman Catholic, too. Uh, you see, history never changes. It's just the people are stupid and don't follow the thing along. And um, you say, well, I hate the Nazis. Well, I do too. Sure you do. Six million Jews, four million Poles, eight million Russians, cold-blooded. But when you stop and look at the Catholic Church, she killed in cold blood from 500 to 1,700, 50 million innocent people. Same system. The purpose for the Inquisition was to wipe out every human being in Europe who differed from what Rome taught and practiced. Every, I mean, if you ever read Mein Kampf, it's the same reason Hitler wanted a superior race. 
He wanted a superior race so he could take over the world, called him a master race. And of course, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did. Roman, Hitler wanted to do it in a thousand years, and Roman Catholic Church had their thousand-year Reich, and the Antichrist is going to bring in a thousand-year uh, uh, tribulation period. It's going to be a counterfeit thousand-year reign of Christ, but he's going to get shut down. Same system. The Inquisition goes into France. It goes into Switzerland. It goes into Poland. It goes into Bohemia. It goes into Rome. It goes all through Europe. It's, like I said, it's not abolished in Spain until about 1820. This time period is covered in many books, which are banned by the Roman Catholic Church. And that's another thing you need to know. They have an official list. It's called the index, just like an index card. That list called the index is the books that, if you're a Roman Catholic, you are not allowed to read. All of our books in our bookstore will be on that list, along with a lot of other ones. The Catholic Church calls it hate literature and anti-religious material. Uh, we call it the truth. And that's the reason why, when you, at the end of the day, you know, Jack Chick, who writes those comic books over there, and he, he put out the, all of those anti-Roman Catholic things, as, as did Avril Manhattan. One great thing a person has to stop and consider about all the volumes of, of stuff that Avril Manhattan wrote about the Roman Catholic Church all the thing a person has to stop and consider about Jack Chick and all the things that he's written about the Roman Catholic Church. Ever stop and bother you that never one time did the Roman Catholic Church ever take him to court for slander? You know why they didn't? Because in a court of law, they'd win. Because it's documented in history. And the Roman Catholic Church is betting on 99.999% of the people on planet Earth not knowing anything about history. That's how she works. That's how she works. These Catholic butchers do their job for Holy Mother Church. On one day, on October 23rd, 1641, 150,000 Christians were murdered for God's glory. Many were buried up to their necks and left to starve to death. Uh, one was forced to go to Mass and then ripped over and open and bled to death. Babies were taken from their mothers and smashed up against the walls of their houses. Uh, many were hung upside down and had their throats cut and bled to death. Some were racked limb from limb. Some were pulled apart by horses. Some were marched through the streets and the towns of hundreds of good Catholic people, beat them, stoned them, and threw rocks on them till they died. Some had their eyes put out, their noses cut off, and their ears cut off. Women were paled on stakes and left to die. Many had their fingernails and their toenails ripped out with hot tongs. Uh, men's, uh, one man who could not accept the mass had a finger and then a toe a day ripped out until they finally bled to death. And uh, believe me, hellish mother church was never outdone by Russia, Japan, or Germany, or any other godforsaken countries that were out for wholesale murder. Stalin couldn't put a, he couldn't put a candle to her. And uh, the historian Laurent, Laurent L-O-R-E-N-T, says from 1448 to 1524, over one million people were killed in Spain alone. And, of course, uh, we also know what happened with Spain when uh, a little bit later on uh, she comes up against England in the Spanish Armada. The principles in the Bible are still the principles in the Bible, and God clearly says, he said to the nation of Israel, but inspirationally you can take it to the church. I'll bless those that bless thee, and I'll curse those that curse thee. And uh, today Spain is a tenth-rate power. In spite of the Inquisition and all that was done and all that was said, uh, Philip Schaff, the great writer of church history, published seven volumes. 
His seven volumes, as I said, are the standard issue for every Bible college in this country. Uh, when uh, the historian Laurent talks about over one million people killed in Spain in the Inquisition that butchered them by the millions, and then we see the demise of Spain, Philip Schaff, uh in volume 6, page 554, uh, he says, we should not rejoice that Spain has ceased to be a world power after its treatment of these people. Nor should we rejoice because Protestants have gained uh, the upper hand in world affairs. Whether we should have sympathetic consideration for Spain, and it should call forth no spirit of denunciation, but rather a hope that Spain's greatness will be renewed. So much for Philip Schaff. And Philip Schaff b- believed what he believes the greatest writer in church history by every Bible seminary in, in, in this country split hell wide open when he died because he believed in baptism regeneration. But the devil always gets it in. And this will bring us up to the 1500s. We've now covered pretty good the Dark Ages. We've looked at the Bible-believing groups. We've seen the persecution of, the, of, the, of those groups. We've seen the Roman Catholic Church come to power, come to full full bloom, so to speak. We've seen her develop herself into the aspect of of the world power now. And again, I say that the world power at this time would be the Middle East and Europe itself and uh, uh, as the hotbed of where it's all at. And now the Roman Catholic Church has come to the place where she's been through the Crusades. She's got herself politically aligned to the kings of Europe. She's got herself religiously in the sheet where she's running the whole thing. And she's totally, totally, totally into corruption. The corruption that we saw tonight in the popes is just the tip of the iceberg of what is going on through the parishes, the priests, the bishops, the archbishops, the cardinals. It's corrupt from one end to the other. But within it, there's still a few good men in there. And I'm going to talk to you next week how those men find God, or next time, how they find God and how God uses them within the system to destroy that system. Well, not destroy it, but certainly breaks the back and will launch us into the, uh, the great period of church history called the Philadelphian Church Age, and we will be here a while. There are so many dimensions of this. If you notice what I'm doing, I'm building church history around five or six major events that you want to remember so you can remember how easy it is. And... Uh, uh, we talked about the first key event that we really focused on was with origin. Remember, down in Alexandria, we showed you how that thing worked there. That's the thing you want to remember. The next thing we looked at was the aspect of Constantine in 325. That's a key point in history. The next thing we saw was Charlemagne in 800. And that's when the Roman Catholic Church and the state of Rome nation was, was made one. That's an incredible important thing. The next thing we looked at was the Crusades. And I showed you how vitally important it is to understand that. The next piece that we're going to look at that is absolutely vital that you understand, because even though it's a historical event and it's true, there's so much misinformation about it that people get really whacked out, which will be the Reformation. And we're going to look at it and we'll talk about the cause of the Reformation how God used the corruption that we looked at tonight, and then we're going to see what the Reformation really did and what it really accomplished. Because you're going to hear a lot about the Reformation, and you need to understand everything about the Reformation just like you need to understand everything about manuscript evidence with origin 
and the boys back there in Alexandria, Egypt. So that's where we're at.